Uh, in chapters 26 and 27 of Matthew's Gospel, which we're looking at in the lead up to Easter, it's clear that the Gospel story is moving to its climax in Jesus' suffering and crucifixion. Having spoken repeatedly of the necessity of his coming death since the disciples' confession of him as Christ way back in chapter 16, and having now arrived at Jerusalem and seen conflict with the religious authorities intensify, Jesus, in our passage, enters into the last day of his life on earth. In anticipation of his death the next day, he eats, as you heard, a planned Passover meal with his disciples, the meal he shared with the Lord's, a meal that remembered the Lord's deliverance of his people from slavery and sharing in his judgment on the Egyptians, his deliverance by the death of a lamb, by the blood of a lamb being smeared on the doorposts and lintels of their houses, a meal the Jewish people were commanded to repeat through all their generations. And at this remembrance of a shared salvation meal, Jesus speaks to his disciples of the meaning and goal of his death as he gives them a way of remembering his death and its achievement always. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So here we have it from Jesus' mouth. Jesus says that the great achievement of his death, his offering of his body and blood on the cross, is the forgiveness of sins for many. And so Jesus says that his death finds its meaning in the context of sin and judgment and forgiveness that spares from judgment. And here we have a problem. For in our age, talk of sin is either an irrelevance or an offence. Listen to Christopher Watkin in his book, Biblical Critical Theory, which is a great book. This is what he says. It's not hard to see why Christians would shy away from foregrounding sin and judgment in our attempts to engage constructively in the debates and questions of our age. Imagine you were to walk down the street of a progressive western city and ask a handful of representative passers-by one simple question. What is sin? You would likely hear two main answers. Sin is an innocent indulgence or a puritanical prejudice, a sneaky chocolate where you kind of know you shouldn't, but not in a serious way, or an intolerant way of imposing one narrow idea of right and wrong on other people. As for judgment, it's become a byword for bigotry. Our culture attacks sin and judgment as hate speech, leaving Christians befuddled, embarrassed, or even in denial about these foundational biblical truths. So believers in Jesus in our society have a twofold problem. Firstly, at the climax of this story we love dearly, think is the best story in the world, the story we want to share with the world, is an idea, sin. The world thinks is either a non-issue or hates. 
And secondly, living in this society, sharing in so many of its assumptions, we start to feel awkward about sin and judgment ourselves, stop thinking about our own lives and behaviour in terms of sin and become distant from what is the glorious heart of our faith, that the crucified Jesus brings us forgiveness of sin. We cease to instinctively feel the wonder and excitement of that and can start to think of the gospel as a bit of a sideshow or to locate the great benefit of believing in Jesus in other things, other aspects of the Christian life like the community, the morality, the family life. And this is both a dangerous and grievous situation. Grievous because this dismissal of sin means our friends find it hard to listen to the gospel and find it easy to dismiss it as irrelevant. Grievous because it impoverishes believers, for forgiveness should be the great treasure and knowing we are forgiven our great daily joy. And grievous because it dishonours our Lord Jesus, says that he gave his life for something that doesn't really matter. And it's dangerous because sin and the judgment it exposes us to are the great reality confronting our race, confronting each one of us, the reality that affects every part of our lives and all our lives and unaddressed will mean our future is in the lake of fire at the last day reserved for all those who persist in their rebellion against God. And they're not my words. That is God's picture of the final judgment in Revelation 20. So this morning I want to remind you first of what sin is and why it matters so that you'll see the wonder of the gift of forgiveness our Lord offers to all who believe in him and the wonder of the giver who makes this offer to you. The story of the gospel doesn't start with Jesus' birth, does it? It starts with the first chapter of the Bible, with the living almighty God creating a world, a creation that God says is very good. The popular lie of our culture that somehow there is doubt about God's existence, doubt that permits you to put God out of your mind and still think of yourself as intellectually respectable, well, that lie doesn't become more respectable by being repeated or even being shouted. It's actually like a blind man repeatedly insisting that there is nothing to see as he cannot see anything. God is and the evidence is not ambiguous. It's there to be seen in creation, in history and in the lives of so many individuals. So it's there to be seen in creation, in both its coming into existence and its continuing existence. Just two examples of the universe as a purposeful creation, not a chance outcome. I'm only going to give you two. There are some books uh, referred to uh, the details given in the outline and in the transcript. But here's the first example, and this is from John Lennox, who's also, like Richard Dawkins, an Oxford professor. Right. This is what he says. The remarkable picture 
that is gradually emerging from modern physics and cosmology is one of a universe whose fundamental forces are amazingly, intricately and delicately balanced or fine-tuned in order for the universe to be able to sustain life. Recent research has shown that many of the fundamental constants of nature, from the energy levels in the carbon atom to the rate at which the universe is expanding, have just the right values for life to exist. Change any of them just a little, and the universe would become hostile to a life to life and incapable of supporting it. And he gives a few examples of this fine-tuning, as does Lee Strobel in his book. But let me read you just one. So you see how unlikely it is that the universe, is, the universe has come into existence and continues in existence just by chance. Theoretical physicist Paul Davies tells us that if the... Now, I'm going to use scientific terms here, but don't believe that I actually understand them, OK? Not these ones, not the physics. The physics leaves me... But, you know, you can look them up, and, and I am reading people who do understand them. Anyhow, theoretical physicist Paul Davies tells us that if the ratio of the nuclear strong force to the electromagnetic force had been different by one part in 10 to the 16th, no stars could have formed. Again, the ratio of the electromagnetic force constant to the gravitational force constant must be equally delicately balanced, increased by only one part in 10 to the 40th. Now, that's a lot of zeros. And only small stars can exist. Decrease it by the same amount and there will only be huge stars. You must have both large and small stars in the universe. The large ones produce elements in their thermonuclear furnaces. And it's only the small ones that burn long enough to sustain a planet with life. To use Davy's illustration... That is the kind of accuracy a marksman would need to hit a coin at the far side of the observable universe 20 billion light years away. The point is actually that the universe coming into existence and sustaining existence by chance is highly, astronomically, unimaginably improbable. A second example, and this time it's from something I do understand, that is from the information-rich genetic makeup of all living things. And this is by Meyer in Dembski's book. So he's, he's talking about DNA. The nucleotide sequences in the coding regions of DNA have, by all accounts, a high information content. That is, they are both highly specified and complex, just like meaningful English sentences of or functional lines of code in computer software. Yet the information contained in an English sentence or computer software doesn't derive from chance and it doesn't derive from the chemistry of the ink or the physics of magnetism, but from a source extrinsic uh, to physics and chemistry altogether. And we know that, a, a personal uh, uh, a, a, a personal source. Indeed, in both cases, the message transcends the properties of the medium. The information in DNA also transcends the properties of the medium. 
our experience with information-intensive systems, especially codes and languages, indicates that such systems always come from an intelligent source. That is, from mental or personal agents, not chance or material necessity. That's a way of saying, really, that every cell at its core points to a creator. See, God's existence is there to be seen in creation. And that God is is there to be seen in history as well, in the history of the Jewish people where God can make a prophecy, say something will happen in the near or distant future and then bring it about. In the history of Jesus, in his being raised from the dead and the spread of his church from that obscure part of the Roman Empire where he suffered a shameful death to the whole world. Oh, and that God is, is the testimony of many individuals whose lives have been changed and sustained by the living God. God is, and the denial of God is very costly for meaning, for reason, for human value, for ethics. Now, I can't argue this at length now, and again, I commend the books to you in the outline. But let me say, if you have been trying to hide from God by relying on his supposed non-existence, well, you're hiding behind a fig leaf. Come and talk. God is. And the fact that God is and the world is his creation means sin is. That is, rebellion against the living God is a real thing. Falling short of God's standards is a real thing. For God is. Sin is. It is serious. And it is damnable. Now let me show you that. Why that's the case by thinking about terra nullius. Now most of all, most of us by this stage of, you know, with all the debates about the voice, have heard of the concept of terra nullius. That was the legal fiction used to justify legally the occupy, occupation and colonisation of Australia. It, it's the idea that Australia was no one's land, and so the British were free to occupy it and use it as they wished and free to impose their own rule over it. Now, what has been the impact of that legal justification and the behaviour that followed it? Well, as we see, deep resentment, justified resentment, amongst the descendants of those whose land it was. Discomfort amongst many of the descendants of the colonisers at the impact of their forebears' action. Oh, and impatience with any who might want to continue to try and justify terra nullius. Now, why that response? It's because it is transparently a fiction, a lie. See, there were plainly people here whose land it was, even if they expressed ownership in a way that was quite different to the customs of 18th century Europeans. And here's my point. We humans treat life, our own lives, and the world we live in as terra nullius, as if life belongs to no one, and so we can claim it for ourselves and impose our own rules on it. 
We want to think of life that way so we can live the way we want, run things the way that suits us. And that's why, of course, we're so keen as a society to persuade ourselves that it all came into being by chance because that gives some justification to our usurping God's place in his world. But like Terra Nullius, this claim that life, the world, belongs to us is a fiction, a lie. So think about it. We're not responsible for bringing this world into being. We're not even responsible for bringing our own lives into being. Our lives are dependent on the processes God's established for the transmission of life and on his sustaining of our world. We receive both the world and life as a gift. And the world created by God belongs to God to be ruled by his word, his decisions. Our lives, sustained by God, belong to God, who gives us every breath we take to be lived according to his instruction. And our sin from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, has been to assert the exact opposite. To assert that God, the creator, is not to be believed, not to be obeyed and not to be thanked. That instead, life is actually to be found by deciding by reference just to ourselves what is right and wrong. Deciding by reference, like Eve did, to our own appetites, desires and intellect, what we will reckon to be right and wrong. And where we're making that decision, God's to be ignored, if possible. (coughs) You know, we show contempt of God, our creator, every time we assert our autonomy, this right we claim to choose what will be considered right and wrong without reference to God. Every time we are determined to live our lives by our own rules, to govern God's world by our own rules. We show that contempt, whether that's in relation to sex or money, our words or what we will worship. You see, every time we say it's right for us to lie, for the common good, right? We show contempt for God our maker. Every time we say we can engage in sexual relationships outside of marriage of a man and a woman, we show contempt for God our maker. Every time we put our trust in money to keep us safe and secure, we show contempt for God our maker. Every time we choose to believe about God what we prefer and not what he has said about himself, we show contempt for God our maker. Every time we use the word world without thankfulness or we attribute our success to ourselves alone, which is pride, we show contempt for God our maker. And if we feel the offence of terra nullius or we understand the offence of Aboriginal people at terra nullius, as we should, what we should feel the offence of the way we have treated and continue to treat God. Oh, yes, and acknowledge the anger it rightfully generates. And like Terra Nullius for the original inhabitants of Australia, our assertion of the lie that life belongs to us, not our creator, that we have the right to make the rules, 
has borne destructive fruit inevitably. Just one example. In our relationships with each other, this assertion brings violence into our world. See, if I have the right to decide my own law and you have the right to decide your own law, if I have the right to demand that everyone value me in the way I value myself as the one who can decide right and wrong, and actually you claim the same right as well, we are in an unceasing war with ourselves. For example, I might decide for myself that it's okay to sleep with someone else's wife and you decide it's not. How will that disagreement be settled? How will right be decided, let alone force, enforced? In the end, only by force, whether it's physical or social. Oh, if my group says your group should give up your land to us because we think it's not being used well, another justification for colonisation, and you disagree, how will that be settled? Or if I say your society should limit its freedoms for the security of my society because it's right that I feel secure, as Putin is saying to Ukraine, how will that be decided? We know, don't we? Our sin against God brings violence and distrust into human relationships and with that insecurity and fear. Oh, and yes, our sin against God has brought harm to the Lord because as it's not created, as it belongs to no one, we can exploit and abuse it as we will. It's just there to serve us. Like Terra Nullius, our lie has brought destructive fruit. But here is the difference. Unlike the first inhabitants of Australia, in the face of our lie, God is not powerless to enforce his ownership, not powerless to enforce his will and judgments. He has never been dispossessed at his creation. And we see that in Genesis 3 with the first sin. What happens? Is God out of the picture? No. He executes his judgment on Adam and Eve unhindered. And we know that because we live with them. Tension in the relationship between men and women. Work that is toil and never produces its fullness. And yes, death. Because of those judgments, we live in a society that will never be perfectible and we will never escape death. And so every one of us will always live with grief and futility. And actually, what we see there, we see throughout history, God continues to do exactly what he wills. And he keeps opposing our rebellion and enacting his judgments. It's what we see. We see that God has judged human sin that he is judging human sin and he will judge human sin. God has judged human sin. The Old Testament gives us many examples, whether it's the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah or the fall of Jerusalem or the destruction of Babylon or the death of Pharaoh. His judgments are enacted. Oh, and he is judging our sin. Read Romans 1 for yourself. It speaks of God giving us up to our folly 
experienced in disordered human thinking, relationships and society. And it reads like a description of our day. Oh, and God will judge our sin. Once Jesus has risen from the dead, that is certain. As Paul said to the Athenians, that God has set a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man, and of that he's given assurance by raising him from the dead. And our Lord teaches that judgment will lead to either eternal punishment or eternal life. God is not powerless, he's not inactive, he enacts his judgment and actually that judgment is deserved and good. The restoration of order in his good creation. Sin, our choosing to trust ourselves, not our creator, to aim for what pleases us and so miss the mark of what he says is right, to live as if this world is ours, not God's. Sin and God's refusal to stop being God, to accommodate our pride seen in his judgment on our sin is our race's problem, our problem, our big and enduring problem. And sin continues to be a problem even for believers who have repented, who have said it's right that God's in charge. Because while sin's power is being broken, it remains present. And as John says in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And the truth is, isn't it, that our sin as believers is actually more serious, more damnable. You see, my impatience with others, as someone who knows and relies on God's patience with me, Actually, it's worse, isn't it? Because it adds hypocrisy to it. Worse than the impatience of someone who's never known that patience. Oh, to harbour bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred as a believer when I have actually known the Lord's love and forgiveness, the Lord who commands me to love and forgive. That's more serious, isn't it? Because there is deep pride in that. How can we be spared the judgment we deserve? Let's face it, no gift we can make can induce God to change his mind. He doesn't need anything. No good we can do. We can only do what we ought to do already and subsequent good can't undo past offence. There's no defence we can make for ourselves. How can the finite creature ever credibly claim to know better than the infinite creator? Choosing to ignore the judgment won't make any difference to its execution and defiance won't spare us. It just shows how self-deceived we are about our goodness and knowledge. How can we be spared the judgment of God our sins deserve? Well, it's only if our sins are forgiven. If God chooses not to reckon them up, not to exact what is owed, And Jesus says he will bring us forgiveness, God's forgiveness, by his death. Jesus took bread, blessed and broke and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks he gave it to them and said, 
Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Our Lord Jesus uses, as he speaks of his body and blood, the language of sacrifice, where the body of the animal was consumed on the altar and its blood manipulated, poured out or sprinkled. He is saying that his coming death is the sacrifice of his whole self, his whole life given in death. And he speaks specifically as his blood, as the blood of the covenant. Now that's a reference to Exodus 24, where we see the beginning, the inauguration of God's covenant with Israel at Sinai. So they've heard God speak, Moses has received more law. Then at the end, uh, there's a sacrifice made and we pick up in verse 7. It says, Moses then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. It was with the sprinkling of the blood that the covenant at Sinai between God and the people of Israel was inaugurated, that the covenant came into effect as the basis and content of God's relationship with them as his people. Now Jesus is saying that his shed blood will inaugurate another covenant. Not the old covenant, but the new covenant that God speaks of in Jeremiah 31. There in Jeremiah 31 he promises a new covenant and we see that the great reality of this covenant that forms the basis and substance of relationship with the living God for those included in this covenant is sins forgiven and remembered no more. Verse 34, no longer will one teach his neighbour or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Hear that? For those in this covenant, our sin won't be on the ledger of our lives anymore to be accounted for. On the record of your life, there will be no red ink if you're included in this covenant. That wrong you have done, as God says, he will never again call to mind to act on it, to give it what it deserves. It'll be forgiven. Think of the wonder of this forgiveness that Jesus says his death will bring into being for those who trust him. This is God's forgiveness, the forgiveness of the God who sees all, before whom our hearts are revealed, who knows all our sin, who knows the worst, the shame we seek to hide from others, who knows the sins we've forgotten. This is God's forgiveness. And so it is forgiveness for all our sin. Nothing left out, past, present or future, nothing to be brought up again in our relationship with God. And it is the forgiveness of the judge of the last day. And so it is a forever forgiveness. 
And it's forgiveness given in a new secure relationship where we are changed and are being changed. At the core of our being, verse 33, we will be directed by God's teaching his law. This is the forgiveness and the only thing that will deal forever with our sin problem. And Jesus says his blood is poured out for many, for many for the forgiveness of sins, for many. Just as he said in Matthew 20 that he would give his life as a ransom for many. That phrase, for many, it's drawn from Isaiah 53 and Jesus' use of it here tells us two things. Firstly, that Jesus understands his death in terms of what was spoken by God of the death of his servant in Isaiah 53 who would bear the sins of many. Just verse 12, Therefore I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as a spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted amongst the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. That's what he's doing on the cross, bearing the sin of many. Oh, and secondly, this phrase tells us that there is an abundant provision for forgiveness in Jesus' coming death. No limit. None are excluded. All who turn to him will be forgiven. Jesus says in his death he will bring what our race and each of us individually needs the forgiveness of the true, the living, the holy and just God who has given us life and whom every one of us has wronged. This is such a great and precious gift, isn't it? It's life. Life now in the gift of the Spirit who could not come to us if our sins were not forgiven. And life forever in the new heaven and earth where the consequences of our sin, pain, grief, weeping, death, will be no more. Life which could not be ours if sin was still present, still remembered, still remembered to exclude us from God's holy presence. And so this forgiveness is the foundation of our hope, the hope Jesus spoke of at the supper when he said that he will drink Wine new with his disciples in his father's kingdom. A phrase which is an allusion to the celebration of heaven, the marriage banquet of the triumphant and crucified saviour at the last day. And this hope that forgiveness gives is sure because Jesus brings full and free forgiveness for all our sins, unearned by us. And as you grapple with the wonder and the richness of this gift, and I hope you think on it and the insurance and comfort it can bring, think also of the glory of the one who gives it to you, the Lord Jesus. He is committing himself to die for us, to bring us this great good of forgiveness. And he does this freely, doesn't he? Because, as you heard in the story, he knows he'll be betrayed, not just in general. He knows specifically who will betray him, Judas. 
But Jesus doesn't seek to detain Judas or deter him. He could have, but he chooses not to. Jesus goes to his death freely, determined to do what God his Father had planned and revealed in his word to save us. The Son of Man, he says, will go just as it is written of him. You see, in dying, Jesus is not resigning himself to an inevitable fate. He is intentionally, determinedly pursuing the saving plan of God for us. Now, I don't know how you think about that, but I am overawed at the courage, the human courage of what Jesus is doing. To know he will die such a cruel and humiliating death and not flee, not hide, not resist. Oh, yes, we'll see next week he struggles. But he doesn't flee, he doesn't hide, he doesn't resist. And he is still able to think about and prepare his followers for what is to come. That is a selfless courage. But more than the courage is the grace, the grace of the gracious God, Father and Son, seen in Jesus' words and actions. Because Jesus is, as he was declared at the beginning, to be at the beginning of the gospel, Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God. The sin he is dying to bring forgiveness for is sin against him, God's true king, the one to whom the world really does belong. Those he is dying for, us included, are rebels against him. We are rejecting his rule in favour of our own. And yet he still freely goes to his death to do us good. And that also underlines the generosity of his love for those who don't deserve his love. In giving his life, he could not give more, could he? And he is doing what only he can do. For only the Son of God can die for the sins of others. All else die for their own sins. And yet that true claim to be the Son excites in our world only mocking and contempt. Jesus is the courageous, gracious, generous Son of God, deliberately, purposefully going to his death to provide forgiveness to sinners, to rebels, to us. That's right, to us. You see, the Lord Jesus knows that what he is doing, he is doing for more than those gathered with him that night. Uh, We know that not just from the command to repeat his words and actions at the Last Supper found in Luke and Paul, whose account we'll hear again next week and whose account of that meal is the earliest. It's actually clearly implied here in Matthew as well by Jesus giving these words and actions in the context of a Passover meal in a book written for a community that was already celebrating the Lord's Supper. You see, the Passover meal was a meal commanded to be repeated year after year, where food with clear symbolic significance was eaten. The lamb to remember the first Passover and share in it. The unleavened bread to remember that they fled Egypt in haste. It was eaten accompanied by words, the words of a story that explained what those symbols meant what they were remembering in eating. And the Passover meal 
also included all who ate it year after year in faithful obedience to God's command. It included them in Israel, in the rescued people of God. Now at this Passover, Jesus' last meal, his last supper with his followers, our Lord Jesus is giving symbolic significance to different food, the bread and the cup of wine. He's making them signs of his coming death and he's giving new words, a new story of salvation that interprets those signs, tells us what they mean. He says, this is my body, that is, the bread is the sign of his body. None of the disciples receiving the bread from Jesus' hand would have thought Jesus was in two places at once, handing them a piece of himself, right? It's a sign of his body given in death as a sacrifice for sins. The cup of wine, he says, is a sign of his blood poured out in death. The death of the servant of Isaiah 53 who bears the sin of many to bring into being the new covenant. And he gives these signs and words to include in the benefit of his death, to include in the new covenant all who will believe in him through the witness of the apostles to his death and resurrection. That is, all who will become his disciples through repentance and faith, shown in baptism in the name of the Father, Son and Spirit and a commitment to doing all that the Lord Jesus has taught, including sharing this simple meal. You see, in giving this meal, Jesus was thinking of his church, the church he's building. He's thinking of us. He's including us when he gave this meal. By eating and drinking the signs of Jesus' death with faith in Jesus' words, we are included. You and I included in the new covenant, included in those whose sins are forgiven, whose sins will be remembered no more. Now there's a lot that could be said about this gracious provision. But recognise the greatness of the forgiveness offered and recognise the greatness of the one who offers. So maybe you're not used to thinking about sin as serious and judgment as real and right. If that's you, consider what I say. For actually sin and judgment are real and they actually make sense of our lives, of our experience, give our lives meaning. And as you think about them, maybe for the first time, think also of the goodness of finding forgiveness and come and talk. Or perhaps you know that you have sinned and the thought of judgment troubles you because, well, you don't know where you could find forgiveness or thought you were too bad for forgiveness or that forgiveness was too hard to obtain. Well, Jesus is saying he dies to bring forgiveness to all who will believe in him and he says that forgiveness can cover all our sins. He can forgive you if you will turn to him. If you repent of being in charge of your own life and say it's right, the Lord Jesus decides what's right and wrong for you and if you ask him to forgive you. And if you're not sure of that or comfortable with that, come and talk. But if you're a believer, keep valuing forgiveness as you should. Don't let your thinking drift from the Bible's big storyline of creation, fall and redemption. Keep recognising sin as the deadly and destructive power it is in human life 
the power that alienates us from our good creator and exposes us to his just judgment, sin as the heart of the human problem. And don't minimise your own continuing need for forgiveness, that we are always saved as a forgiven people. And keep that big storyline prominent in your thinking and know the assurance of being forgiven by Christ by using the means he has provided, by sharing regularly and thoughtfully in the meal Jesus initiated for his followers the night before he died. The meal he gave to us so that we would know that we're included by faith in those for whom he died, those who are included in the new covenant, those who can know their sins are forgiven and remembered no more. You see, eating and drinking at Jesus' command honours our Lord Jesus. When you eat and drink, you are saying to the Lord Jesus, the words you spoke before you died are true. You actually saved me by your death. You bring me forgiveness by your blood. In dying, you make me to you make me one of your new covenant people, and you give me a share in the heavenly feast. In eating and drinking, you're saying of the Lord Jesus and to him, entrusting you in your death for sin. I no longer need to fear the judgment I deserve or live in terror of the death of our bodies which will come. You're saying to the Lord Jesus, believing your word, I know now at your table that whatever my sin, no matter how awful or vivid it is in my mind, no matter how shameful or grievous, I know now your judgment on it at the last day, forgiven. So come, show your trust in Jesus. Show you want to honour the Lord Jesus by coming regularly and thoughtfully to share in the meal our Lord has provided. Come, believing, eat and drink for your comfort, encouragement and eternal joy. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy that these would not just be empty words. We pray through your spirit that you would convict us that you are, and we would flee from the lies of our world that seek to deny you in your creation. 